Chapter Thirty Four, Part Two of the Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lonnie Small. The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni. Chapter Thirty Four, Part Two. Renzo had already gone some distance on his way through the midst of this desolation, when he heard, proceeding from a street a few yards off, into which he had been directed to turn, a confused noise. He readily distinguished the usual horrible tinkling. At the entrance of the street, which was one of the most spacious, he perceived four carts standing in the middle, and as in a corn market there is a constant hurrying to and fro of people, and an emptying and filling of sacks, such was the bustle here. Monati intruding into houses, Monati coming out, bearing a burden upon their shoulders which they placed upon one or other of the carts, some in red livery, others without that distinction, many with another still more odious, plumes and cloaks of various colors which these miserable wretches wore in the midst of the general mourning, as if in honor of a festival. From time to time the mournful cry resounded from one of the windows, here, Monati, and with a still more wretched sound, a harsh voice rose from this horrible source in reply, Coming directly, or else there were lamentations nearer at hand, or entreaties to make haste, to which the Monati responded with oaths. Having entered the street, Renzo quickened his steps, trying not to look at these obstacles further than was necessary to avoid them. His attention, however, was arrested by a remarkable object of pity, such pity as inclines to the contemplation of its object, so that he came to a pause, almost without determining to do so. Coming down the steps at one of the doorways, and advancing towards the convoy, he beheld a woman, whose appearance announced still remaining though somewhat advanced youthfulness, a veiled and dimmed but not destroyed beauty, was still apparent. In spite of much suffering, and a fatal languor. That delicate, and at the same time majestic beauty, was inconspicuous in the Lombard blood. Her gait was weary, but not tottering. No tears fell from her eyes, though they bore tokens of having shed many. There was something peaceful and profound in her sorrow, which indicated a mind fully conscious, and sensitive enough to feel it. But it was not only her own appearance which, in the midst of so much misery, marked her out so especially as an object of commiseration, and revived in her behalf a feeling now exhausted, extinguished, in men's hearts. She carried in her arms a little child, about nine years old, now a lifeless body, but laid out and arranged, with her hair parted on her forehead, and in a white and remarkably clean dress, as if those hands had decked her out for a longed-promised feast, granted as a reward nor was she lying there, but upheld and adjusted on one arm, with her breast reclining against her mother's like a living creature, save that a delicate little hand, as white as wax, hung from one side with a kind of inanimate weight, and the head rested upon her mother's shoulder with an abandonment deeper than that of sleep. Her mother, for even if their likeness to each other had not given assurance of the fact, the countenance which still depicted any feeling would have clearly revealed it. A horrible-looking Monato approached the woman, 
and attempted to take the burden from her arms with a kind of unusual respect, however, and with involuntary hesitation. But she, slightly drawing back, yet with an air of one who knows neither scorn nor displeasure, said, No, don't take her from me yet. I must place her myself on this cart. Here, so saying, she opened her hand, displayed a purse which she held in it, and dropped it into that which the monato extended toward her. She then continued, Promise me not to take a thread from her, nor to let any one else attempt to do so, and to lay her in the ground thus. The monato laid his right hand on his heart, then zealously and almost obsequiously, rather from the new feeling by which he was, as it were, subdued, than on account of the unlooked-for reward, hastened to make a little room on the cart for the infant dead. The lady, giving it a kiss on the forehead, laid it on the spot prepared for it as upon a bed, arranged it there, covering it with a pure white linen cloth, and pronounced the parting words, Farewell, Cecilia, rest in peace. This evening we too will join you, to rest together for ever. In the meanwhile pray for us, for I will pray for you and the others. Then turning to the monato, You, said she, when you pass this way in the evening, may come to fetch me too, and not me only. So saying, she re-entered the house, and after an instant appeared at the window, holding in her arms another more dearly loved one, still living, but with the marks of death on its countenance. She remained to contemplate these so unworthy obsequies of the first child, from the time the car started until it was out of sight, and then disappeared. And what remained for her to do, but to lay upon the bed the only one that was left to her, and to stretch herself beside it, that they might die together, as the flower already full-blown upon the stem falls together with the bud still enfolded in its calyx, under the scythe which levels alike all the herbage of the field. "'Oh, Lord!' exclaimed Renzo. "'Hear her! Take her to thyself! Her and that little one!' They have suffered enough, surely they have suffered enough. Recovered from these singular emotions, and while trying to recall to memory the directions he had received, to ascertain whether he was to turn at the first street, and whether to the right or left, he heard another and a different sound proceeding from the latter, a confused sound of imperious cries, feeble lamentations, prolonged groans, sobs of women, and children's moans. He went forward, oppressed at heart by that one sad and gloomy foreboding. Having reached the spot where the two streets crossed, he beheld a confused multitude advancing from one side, and stood still to wait till it had passed. It was a party of sick on their way to the lazaretto, some driven thither by force, vainly offering resistance, vainly crying that they would rather die upon their own beds, and replying with impotent imprecations to the oaths and commands of the Manati who were conducting them, others who walked on in silence, without any apparent grief, and without hope, like insensible beings, women with infants clinging to their bosoms, children terrified by the cries, the mandates, and the crowd, more than by the confused idea of death, with loud cries demanding their mother and her trusted embrace, and imploring that they might remain at their well-known homes. Alas! Perhaps their mother, whom they supposed they had left asleep upon her bed, 
had there thrown herself down senseless, subdued in a moment by the disease to be carried away on a cart to the lazaretto, or to the grave. Perhaps, oh, misfortune deserving of still more bitter tears, the mother, entirely taken up by her own sufferings, had forgotten everything, even her own children, and had no longer any wish but to die in quiet. In such a scene of confusion, however, some examples of constancy and piety might still be seen. Parents, brothers, sons, husbands supported their loved ones, and accompanying them with words of comfort, and not adults only, but even boys and little girls, escorting their younger brothers and sisters, and with manly sense and compassion, exhorting them to obedience, and assuring them that they were going to a place where others would take care of them and try to restore them to health. In the midst of the sadness and emotions of tenderness excited by these spectacles, a far different solicitude pressed more closely upon our traveller and held him in a painful suspense. The house must be near at hand, and who knew whether among these people, but the crowd having all passed by, and this doubt being removed, he turned to a monato who was walking behind, and asked him for the street and dwelling of Don Ferrante. "'It's gone to smash, clown,' was the reply he received. Renzo cared not to answer again, but perceiving a few yards' distance a commissary who brought up the convoy, and had a little more Christian-like countenance, he re-repeated the same inquiry. The commissary, with a stick in the direction whence he had come, said, "'The first street to the right, the last gentleman house on the left.' With new and still deeper anxiety of mind, the youth bent his steps thitherward, and quickly distinguished the house among others more humble and unpretending. He approached the closed door, placed his hand on the knocker, and held it in suspense, as in an urn, before drawing out the ticket upon which depends life or death. At length he raised the hammer and gave a resolute knock. In a moment or two a window was slightly opened, and a woman appeared at it to peep out looking toward the door with a suspicious countenance which seemed to say, Manati, robbers, commissaries, poisoners, devils. Signora, said Renzo, looking upward in a somewhat tremulous tone, is there a young country girl here at service, of the name of Lucia? She's here no longer. Go away, answered the woman, preparing to shut the window. One moment, for pity's sake. She's no longer here. Where is she? at the lazaretto, and she was again about to close the window. But one moment, for heaven's sake, with the pestilence? To be sure, something new, eh? Get you gone. Oh, stay, was she very ill? How long is it? But this time the window was closed in reality. Oh, signora, signora, one word for charity, for the sake of your poor dead. I don't ask you for anything of yours. Alas, oh! but he might as well have talked to a wall. Afflicted by this intelligence, and vexed with the treatment he had received, Renzo again seized the knocker, and standing close to the door kept squeezing and twisting it in his hand, then lifted it to knock again in a kind of despair, and paused in act to strike. In this agitation of feeling he turned to see if his eye could catch any person near at hand from whom he might perhaps receive some more sober information, some direction, some light but the first, the only person he discovered was another woman, distant perhaps about twenty yards, who with a look full of terror, hatred, impatience, and malice, 
with a certain wild expression of eye, which betrayed an attempt to look at him and something else at a distance at the same time, with a mouth opened as if on the point of shouting as loud as she could, but holding even her breath, raising two thin bony arms, and extending and drawing back two wrinkled and clenched hands, as if reaching to herself something, gave evident signs of wishing to call people without letting somebody perceive it. On their eyes encountering each other, she, looking still more hideous, started like one taken by surprise. "'What the—' began Renzo, raising his fist toward the woman. But she, having lost all hope of being able to have him unexpectedly seized, gave utterance to the cry she had hitherto restrained. "'The poisoner! Seize him! Seize him! Seize him! The poisoner!' "'Who? I? Ah! You lying old witch! Hold your tongue there!' cried Renzo and he sprang towards her to frighten her and make her be silent. He perceived, however, at this moment, that he must rather look after himself. At the screens of the woman people flocked from both sides, not the crowds indeed which in a similar case would have collected three months before, but still more than enough to crush a single individual. At this very instant the window was again thrown open, and the same woman who had shown herself so uncourteous just before displayed herself this time in full and cried out, "'Take him, take him, for he must be one of those wicked wretches who go about to anoint the doors of the gentlefolks.' Renzo determined in an instant that it would be a better course to make his escape from them than stay to clear himself. He cast an eye on each side to see where were the fewest people, and in that direction took to his legs. He repulsed with a tremendous push one who attempted to stop his passage. With another blow on the chest he forced a second to retreat eight or ten yards who was running to meet him, and away he went at full speed, with his tightly clenched fist uplifted in the air in preparation for whomsoever should come his way. The street was clear before him, but behind his back he heard resounding more and more loudly the savage cry, "'Seize him! Seize him! A poisoner!' He heard, drawing nearer and nearer, the footsteps of the swiftest among his pursuers. His anger became fury anguish was changed into desperation. A cloud seemed gathering over his eyes. He seized hold of his poniard, unsheathed it, stopped, drew himself up, turned round a more fierce and savage face than he had ever put on in his whole life, and brandishing it in the air with outstretched arm, the glittering blade, exclaimed, "'Let him who dares come forward, you rascals, and I'll anoint him with this in earnest.' But with astonishment, and a confused feeling of relief, he perceived that his persecutors had already stopped at some distance, as if in hesitation, and that while they continued shouting after him, they were beckoning with uplifted hands like people possessed and terrified out of their senses, to others at some distance beyond him. He again turned round, and beheld before him, and a very little way off, for his extreme perturbation had prevented his observing it a moment before a cart advancing, indeed a file of the usual funeral carts with their usual accompaniments, and beyond them another small band of people, who were ready on their part to fall upon the poisoner and take him in the midst. These, however, were also restrained by the same impediment. Finding himself thus between two fires, it occurred to him that what was to them a cause of terror might be for himself a means of safety. He thought that this was not a time for squeamish scruples, 
So again sheathing his poniard, he drew a little on one side, resumed his way toward the carts, and passing by the first, remarked in the second a tolerably empty space. He took aim, sprang up, and lit with his right foot in the cart, his left in the air, and his arms stretched forward. "'Bravo! Bravo!' exclaimed the Manati with one voice, some of whom were following the convoy on foot, others were seated on the carts, and others, to tell the horrible fact as it really was, on the dead bodies, quaffing from a large flask which was going the round of the party. "'Bravo! A capital hit! You've come to put yourself under the protection of the Manati. You may reckon yourself as safe as in church,' said one of the two who were seated on the cart upon which he had thrown himself." The greater part of his enemies had, on approach of the train, turned their backs upon him and fled, crying at the same time, "'Seize him! Seize him! A poisoner!' Some few of them, however, retired more deliberately, stopping every now and then, and turning with a hideous grin of rage and threatening gestures toward Renzo, who replied to them from the cart by shaking a fist at them. "'Leave it to me,' said a Minato, and tearing a filthy rag from one of the bodies, he hastily tied it in a knot and taking it by one of its ears, raised it like a sling toward these obstinate fellows, and pretended to hurl it at them, crying, "'Here, you rascals!' At this action they all fled in horror, and Renzo saw nothing but the backs of his enemies, and heels which bounded rapidly through the air, like the hammers in a clothier's mill. A howl of triumph arose among the Manati, a stormy burst of laughter, a prolonged a as an accompaniment, so to say, to this fugue. Aha! Look if we don't know how to protect honest fellows, said the same Manato to Renzo. One of us is worth more than a hundred of those cowards. Certainly I may say I owe you my life, replied he, and I thank you with all my heart. Not a word, not a word, answered the Manato. You deserve it. One can see you're a brave young fellow. You do right to poison these rascals. Anoint away. Extirpate all those who are good for nothing except when they're dead. For in reward for the life we lead, they only curse us, and keep saying that when the pestilence is over they'll have us all hanged. They must be finished before the pestilence. The Manati only must be left to chant victory and revel in Milan. "'Long live the pestilence and death to the rabble!' exclaimed the other and with this beautiful toast he put the flask to his mouth, and holding it with both hands amidst the joltings of the cart, took a long draught, and then handed it to Renzo, saying, "'Drink to our health!' "'I wish it you all with my whole heart,' said Renzo, "'but I'm not thirsty. I don't feel any inclination to drink just now.' "'You've had a fine fright, it seems,' said the Monato. "'You look like a harmless creature enough. You should have another face than that to be a poisoner.' "'Let everybody do as he can,' said the other. "'Here, give it to me,' said one of those on foot at the side of the car, "'for I too want to drink another cup to the health of his honour, "'who finds himself in such capital company. "'There, there, just there, among that elegant carriage-full.' "'And with one of his hideous and cursed grins, "'he pointed to the cart in front of that upon which our poor Renzo was seated. "'Then, composing his face to an expression of seriousness, "'still more wicked and revolting,' He made a bow in that direction, and resumed. "'May it please you, my lord, to let a poor wretch of a Monato taste a little of this wine from your cellar? Mind you, sir, our way of life is only so-so. We have taken you into our carriage to give you a ride into the country, 
and then it takes very little wine to do harm to your lordships. The poor Manati have good stomachs. And amidst the loud laughs of his companions, he took the flask and lifted it up, but before drinking turned to Renzo, and fixed his eyes on his face, and said to him, with a certain air of scornful compassion, "'The devil with whom you have made agreement must be very young, for if we hadn't been by to rescue you, he'd have given you mighty assistance.' And amidst a fresh outburst of laughter, he applied the flagon to his lips. "'Give us some! What? Give us some!' shouted many voices from the preceding car. The ruffian, having swallowed as much as he wished, handed the great flask with both hands into those of his fellow ruffians, who continued passing it round, until one of them, having emptied it, grasped it by the neck, slung it round in the air two or three times, and dashed it to atoms upon the pavement, crying, "'Long live the pestilence!' He then broke into one of their licentious ballads, and was soon accompanied by all the rest of this depraved chorus. The infernal song, mingled with the tinkling of the bells, the rattle of the cart, and the trampling of men and horses, resounded through the silent vacuity of the streets, and echoing in the houses, bitterly wrung the hearts of the few who still inhabited them. But what cannot sometimes turn to advantage? What cannot appear good in some cases or another? The extremity of a moment before had rendered more than tolerable to Renzo the company of these dead and living companions, and now the sounds that relieved him from the awkwardness of such a conversation were, I had almost said, acceptable, music to his ears. Still half-bewildered and in great agitation, he thanked Providence in his heart, best he could, that he had escaped such imminent danger without receiving or inflicting injury. He prayed for assistance to deliver himself now from his deliverers, and for his part kept on the lookout, watching his companions, and reconnoitering the road, that he might seize the proper moment to slide quietly down, without giving them an opportunity of making any disturbance or uproar, which might stir up mischief in the passers-by. And, lo, on turning a corner, he seemed to recognize the place along which they were about to pass. He looked more attentively and at once knew it by more certain signs. Does the reader know where he was? In the direct course to the Porta Orientale, in that very street along which he had gone so slowly and returned so speedily about twenty months before. He quickly remembered that from thence he could go straight to the lazaretto, and this finding of himself in the right way without any endeavor on his own, and without direction, he looked upon as a special token of divine guidance, and a good omen of what remained. At that moment a commissary came to meet the cars, who called out to the Manati to stop, and I know not what besides. It need only be said that they came to a halt, and the music was changed into clamorous dialogues. One of the Manati seated on Renzo's car jumped down. Renzo said to the other, Thank you for your kindness. God reward you for it and sprang down at the opposite side. "'Get you gone, poor poisoner,' replied the man. "'You'll not be the fellow that'll ruin Milan.' Fortunately, there was no one at hand who could overhear him. The party had stopped on the left side of the street. Renzo hastily crossed over to the opposite side, and, keeping close to the wall, trudged onwards toward the bridge, crossed it, followed the well-known street of the Borgo, and recognized the convent of the Capuchins. He comes close to the gate, sees the projecting corner of the lazaretto, passes through the palisade, 
and the scene outside the enclosure is laid open to his view, not so much an indication and specimen of the interior as itself a vast, diversified, and indescribable scene. Along the two sides, which are visible to a spectator from this point, all was bustle and confusion. There was a great concourse, an influx and reflux of people, sick, flocking in crowds to the lazaretto, some sitting or lying on the edge of one or other of the moats that flanked the road, whose strength had proved insufficient to carry them within their place of retreat, or, when they had abandoned it in despair, had equally failed to convey them further. Others were wandering about as if stupefied, and not a few were absolutely beside themselves. One would be eagerly relating his fancies to a miserable creature laboring under the malady, another would be actually raving, while a third appeared with a smiling countenance, as if assisting at some gay spectacle. But the strangest and most clamorous kind of so melancholy a gaiety was a loud and continual singing, which seemed to proceed from that wretched assembly, and even drowned all the other voices. A popular song of love, joyous and playful, one of those which are called rural, and following this sound by the eye to discover who could possibly be so cheerful, yonder, tranquilly seated in the bottom of the ditch that washes the walls of the lazaretto, he perceived a poor wretch, with upturned eyes, singing at the very stretch of his voice. Renzo had scarcely gone a few yards along the south side of the edifice, when an extraordinary noise arose in the crowd, and a distant cry of, "'Take care!' and "'Stop him!' He stood upon tiptoe, looked forward, and beheld a jaded horse galloping at full speed, impelled forward by a still more wretched-looking rider, a poor frantic creature, who, seeing the beast loose and unguarded standing by a cart, had hastily mounted his bare back, and striking him on the neck with his fists, and spurring him with his heels, was urging him impetuously onward. Minotti were following, shouting and howling, and all were enveloped in a cloud of dust, which whirled round their heads. Confounded and weary with the sight of so much misery, the youth arrived at the gate of that abode, where perhaps more was concentrated than had been scattered over the whole space it had yet been his fortune to traverse. He walked up to the door, entered under the vaulted roof, and stood for a moment without moving in the middle of the portico. End of chapter 34 Part 2